the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. Joined today, as always, by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. Hi. Good stuff. So, Forward Together is our podcast produced by Hollywood Trust, and we're a community relations focused organisation uh, based at the heart of Derry, London Derry. And we're having this conversation on four main issues around increasing the civic voice, creating a shared and integrated society, dealing with the past, and addressing the constitutional question. And our last two episodes have been a conversation with Dennis Bradley, who is the co-author of the Eames Bradley Report. And so today, Paul, we're delighted to have the other author of that report with us. That's right. Lord Eames, Robin Eames, uh, former archbishop and also a lawyer by background. Okay. And Robin talks uh, obviously about Eames Bradley, but about other stuff as well. And it starts by talking about the disconnect that he's seeing between elected representatives and people in the community. Yeah, I and mean, one of the strengths of some of these interviews is you're talking with people who've thought a lot about some of the questions we're posing, and, and Robin is one of those. And yeah, he's saying there's a political disconnect uh, between the population and society, and he's talking about the fact that civil society threatens politicians, which yeah. is why they're not very comfortable uh, with the ideas behind it and the fact that we didn't have a continuation of the civil forum after the first few days mm, okay he also talks about dealing with the past and and part of that conversation that he has is about definitions and how we sometimes seem to tangle ourselves up and defining things here yeah i mean definitions are, are, are very important when we're talking about northern ireland and, and just to go back to the previous conversation about civic society i mean he's using the phrase people's assembly mm. and he's the first person i've heard talking about that so again it's about how we use the terminology what words we use and how we talk about things and and yes robin is very very struck about you know the fact that uh, we we need to be care- very careful about how we talk about things but also he's saying it's, uh, there's a real danger that we rewrite history yeah. and that we need to find ways that actually deal properly uh, with the, what's happened to us and also he he's very strongly of a view that many other people don't agree with but his view is very strongly that we have to deal with the past if we're going to have uh, have the ability the capacity to build the future okay let's hear the conversation that you had with Robin now the first question is how do we strengthen civil society do you mean in Northern Ireland or do you mean generally? I mean uh, Northern Ireland, though, this th- deals with border issues as well. So I, I, in a sense, looking particularly at what's happened with citizens' assemblies in the south, what can we learn within Northern Ireland and drawing on the experience of the Civic Forum as well? Right. We're at a very delicate stage where society is beginning to learn that the party politic regime doesn't necessarily reflect their deepest concerns. I'm talking about health and education and social issues. And what I think is appearing in Northern Ireland terms is a gulf between the way in which elected politicians are trying to represent views in which they're not really in touch with the vast majority of society. And I think this means that they're falling back all the time on party political issues. And I think the Brexit pressure is bringing this to the surface. 
and the old traditional views where unionist or Republican uh, party politics were able to state fairly clearly their position. That is not necessarily the position of their constituents. And then added to that, there is a vast wave of people in normal, ordinary, everyday society who are turning their backs on the party political input and beginning to say, you, you're, you're playing your own games, but you're not either representing us or reflecting what really concerns us at the ground level. And so it leads me to ask about definitions. Do you define the party political issues on one front? And do you say the vast majority of society in the other, which is coping with uncertainty, coping with day-to-day -day living issues, but not necessarily finding uh, a reflection of that in party politics as they are? And of course, in definitive terms, it questions to me the question of whether or not direct rule is an alternative to represent more clearly the feelings of people on the ground. But as long as you've got the orange and pink in Northern Ireland, I don't see headway in that being made. So what would be your preferred structure to bring people's voices more into the political dialogue? I think we need to do a lot more research into the People's Assembly concept. I think we need to do a lot more in how the media reflects what people on the ground are saying. And I think people, to a large extent, the people that talk to me are the people that I'm in touch with, feel a tremendous degree of frustration for the lack of representation and understanding in the media of what really concerns them in everyday life. The other day I was talking to a general practitioner, a medical man. He said to me, the more I listen to what my patients are saying to me about the issues of everyday life in Northern Ireland, which affects them, the less I believe that that's being represented by party politics. And I think we have to say, what is it that in the democracy at the moment, the 21st century, we, what, what can we do to give society a voice which isn't necessarily purely by those who they voted for at a general election? It's a vast subject, and the reform and the research into it is only at an early stage. But I think much more effort is needed to bring the two worlds together. And when you talk about a People's Assembly, how would that be different from either the Civic Forum or the Citizens' Assemblies in the South? It's very similar. It's very similar. That happens to be just the title that I find comfortable <laughs> with. But uh, it's got similar, similar strains. It's got similar opinions. But the danger in it, and the danger I think is beginning to emerge in, in the Republic, that those uh, well-meaning efforts to let the voice of ordinary people be heard are falling again into political traps. And they're beginning to say uh, things like uh, what, what we're saying is represented by such and such a manifesto. It, it's to try and get a voice which is honest, open, and in touch with reality. And the structure for that is 
probably is more important even than those who take part in it. But there is clearly a tension here, which is both of the two major parties, by my understanding, have concerns about the legitimacy or the challenge that a different citizens' organisation, the Citizens' Assembly, People's Assembly, would represent to, to themselves. But you see, that's really an indication of feeling threatened. Threat is a wonderful motivation uh, to push people on. Party politics, it feels threatened by suggestions of something what we're talking about, whatever you call it. Uh, People, politicians feel subject to threat when in fact what they should be doing is perhaps being proposed by another means. And it's that feeling of threat that I'm getting from party politicians at the moment who immediately want to stop any move towards the the sort of assembly that we're talking about. Now, presumably, the objective of one of the key objectives is to achieve a more shared and integrated society. How do you think we can achieve that? what you mean, I'm not playing with words, but it depends what we mean by shared. Party party politics after the Good Friday Belfast Agreement had a wonderful opportunity of indicating what a shared responsibility was. The fact that it hasn't happened in the years since is an indication of how they have responded to that degree of threat. Uh, Time and again, you get the old recourse to orange and green. Time and again, you get questions of who was a victim? How do you define a victim of the troubles? And immediately, party politics slips into us and them. The person who was an innocent bystander was blown to pieces, as opposed to the person who went out to bomb, to shoot, or again, the person who wore a uniform and to a union's point of view represented uh, the right side of this. So all of that is the complexity of what we're trying to achieve when we talk about the voice of the people in the street. And that is why I speak of words like frustration. So, to go back to that question, though, recognising, as we will in a moment, the difficulties of dealing with the past, I mean, how do we look forward in ways that create a more integrated society? Well, we try to bite the bullet on issues like who was a victim. Do you say that we were all victims, those of us who lived through and were involved in the years of the troubles? We were all victims of a massive disintegration of society. Is that the way to approach it? Victims of people who suffer, irrespective of the label, irrespective of who they were or what they did. They suffered because of an enormity of what the troubles did. Or do we sink back into the orange and green, which is uh, only an innocent person is a genuine victim? It's interesting you're making this point because you're not the only person to have said this, if this is what you're saying, which is that unless we deal honestly and openly with the past, we can't actually have a basis for having an open and shared future. 
That's exactly what I'm saying. You must remember that I'm speaking from my personal experience of ministering to many hundreds of people who suffered because of the troubles. I'm speaking of families that were bereft of father, son, wife, daughter. I'm speaking of people who felt that they were the victims because they put on a uniform, they were given the power of the state to do things, and as a result of that, they became targets. Now that have no, I have no difficulty in defining them in a particular way, but I equally believe that maturity, yes, maturity, demands that we take a wider view of what a victim was. A victim is someone who suffered physically, mentally, spiritually, materially because of the fact they lived in a certain place, they did a certain job, they had a certain political outlook, and they were involved in a situation which was massively bigger than anything they'd ever been taught that they would have to face. So... Recognising that we haven't achieved the level of progress on the Eames-Bradley report that you would have hoped and Dennis would have hoped and much of society would have hoped, I mean, how do we today deal with the past? How do we go forward? I think it's interesting that you raise the Eames-Bradley thing. Obviously, I, I spent much of my much of my uh, time uh, in helping to produce that report. The interesting thing is that while it was technicality where we proposed a particular figure for a compensation that was the uh, watchword for those who tried to destroy the report time and time again over the years since it people have gone back to the terms of Eames Bradley and even now as government tries to look at a way of dealing with the past. People come to me and say, what did that mean in the Eames-Bradley report? Would you change that if you were doing it today? In other words, it's not gathering dust on a platform or on a bookcase somewhere. It's actually still in people's minds. And I like to think that what recently, going from Stormont House to the other attempts to deal with the past, there are still the seeds, there are still the seeds of Eames Bradley and a lot that's being talked about. So if you were to ask me, if you're doing it again, would you change it? I would probably change the question of mentioning a figure, yes. But the rest I would stand over because I think it's endured time. I mean, I interviewed Dennis a few days ago and he was saying that perhaps the one of the challenges was not to have got the governments as involved in and committed to the recommendations as in hindsight he perhaps or the, the yourselves should have done. Is, is that a, a feeling that you That's share? Fair. No, Dennis has got a fair point there. I would go along with that. But what I would say is one of the biggest spots was the membership of our committee. We didn't have a radical unionist and we didn't have radical republican represented. Mind you, the argument then and the argument now is still the same, that were they involved, we probably wouldn't have got as far as we did get. But on the other hand, it would have added a little bit more, uh, what's the word, a bit more 
sensitivity to what we were to recommend. So to that extent, yes, I think the government was too involved in it. But on the other hand, we had to walk between two horses. One was civic society, and the other, what was possible in government terms. And do you think Stormont House is as good as we can do now? At the moment, I think Stormont House is progress. I say do. I think also it has owes a lot, although it's not for me to say, but I think it owes a lot to Eames Bradley. And I think it again indicates that a lot of what we said is still in people's minds. One of the issues is still about the extent to which we need the recovery of truth. And one of the things that some loyalist political leaders that I've spoken to have said is that they need, in order to to make progress, they need um, an apology, a genuine apology from the provisionals in terms of actions in the past. And, you know, they are comfortable about other organisations also issuing apologies. I mean, do you think that is... Uh, uh, one of the necessities to make progress? Well, of course, apology again raises the question of definition. Mm. Uh, It depends to loyalist eyes, to loyalist views and loyalist eyes. It depends uh, what they would interpret as a wholehearted apology. But in a sense, you're already rewriting history. Mm. I mean, does that mean that uh, if you're a Republican activist and you say, I'm sorry for what I did, does that question uh, or your integrity in being involved in the first place? Does it mean, for example, a loyalist paramilitary? And I'm in touch with many of that ilk at the moment. Does it mean that if a loyalist paramilitary comes out into the open and says, look, I want to apologize to uh, for what I did or for what I was responsible for, that the degree of that apology is really the question of what does it say about your involvement in the first place? It is also the issue about whether one person has the moral uh, ability to apologise for the actions of somebody else. Of you know, so you does David Cameron's apology on behalf of Ted Heath actually mean anything? That's right. Of course, it's got to be an individual one because you can't. I can't apologise on behalf of my community. I have to say, I apologize for my role in whatever it was. And that is a genuine personal opinion. But you cannot speak on behalf of a society which says, I apologize on behalf of the X Mm. degree of my community for what we did. Because that that is coming very close to rewriting history. Mm. And rewriting history is one of the greatest dangers of the position we're in at the moment. And it does seem to be what's happening the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Every time I pick up a newspaper, it confronts me. And any time I hear a speech, it confronts me. Mm. It's the parallel process of denial of current reality and rewriting past events. Absolutely. You put your finger on it. And I think there is an integral connection between those two, which I believe takes you to the truth of the matter. 
So the other big challenge we have now is how we have the constitutional conversation in ways that don't damage the extent to which we have made progress in terms of relationships and without provoking anger. Yes, and when you say constitutional issue, of course, I'm sorry, I go back to being a lawyer and say, what do you mean by constitutional issue? Well, of course, we mean the the status of Northern Ireland, whether it remains within the United Kingdom or whether it creates part of a a new union of Ireland or other terminology we wish to use. Yes. This, this question has been raised by, I think, Mike Nesbitt in the last couple of days. Well, Jimmy Nesbitt, actually, but yes. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, I know. Uh, it's been raised in the last couple of days. I think that we're moving into a situation where many of the young people who are now coming of voting age are saying, in a sense, we don't want to talk about age-old issues. We want a situation in which our rights to be an individual to find success and happiness are protected within society. And it gets back to your very first question, Paul. What is the nature of the present growing generation, irrespective of Protestant or Roman Catholic, Unionist, Nationalist, Republican, who simply say, look, in the world as it is, we need certain guarantees of freedom to be ourselves, to grow into whatever uh, we can be and to achieve what we can be for ourselves. The danger in that, of course, is that you turn your back on reality because Northern Ireland seems to be inevitably gifted with the ability to slip back into the old traditional divisions of orange and green. And I think that this could well happen again. But the majority of young people who talk to me are saying, look, we don't want to get involved in all that. We just simply want some guarantee that we have the freedom to live. And it touches on another issue which we previously talked of, which is about how we deal with the past and how do we deal with the future is the same question in a sense of are we open and honest or are we too fearful to talk about things? And it strikes me that maybe there's a parallel here with psychoanalysis of the individual that do you need to deal with the things you're trying to hide away or do you actually confront them and talk about them honestly? I think confronting them and talking about them honestly, provided there is openness and honesty, and provided it doesn't slip back to the old conundrum of rewriting the past. People have said to me, we need a completely independent history of what happened. And I say, yes, of course we do. But who's going to do that? What is independence? And what is the reality of the evidence they will use? They talk about the Boston tapes. They talk about confessions of the security forces. They talk about the fact that uh, republicanism, terrorism didn't keep a record, whereas the 